Good morning. Happy Easter. How are you? Good. Worship team did an awesome job this morning. Yes, they brought it. It's good to have you in God's house. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11. If you have a Bible and would like to turn there, 1 Corinthians 15. We're really going to start with verse 12, but we're going to go back and look at verses 1 through 11. So that's where we will be. I'll project the verses as we go along. Let's go to prayer. Father, we uh, bow before you uh, who... Uh, sent your only son uh, to bear our sin uh, so he could be our savior. And Lord, we thank you for obeying the Father's will and uh, loving us enough to die for our sin and powerful enough to pick up your body as you foretold you would and rise the third day. Uh, And we thank you, Spirit, for being part of this entire process and, and bringing salvation to us. We worship and adore you. Use the word of God today to encourage the saints, to motivate us, uh, to share the gospel. And for those who don't know you that are uh, here in this room online or in one of the overflow rooms, we pray that uh, the gospel would be clear so that they can come to know the Savior today. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, if you don't know me, uh, I grew up playing baseball. In fact, that's what I was going to do with my life. Uh, my dad was a, I'm from California, so my dad was a major Dodger fanatic. Uh, and so I became a Dodger fanatic along with my father. So, um, so I grew up playing ball since I was five on teams, uh, and, and, and my dad was so fanatical that after practices, when I got into high school, uh, two, three hour practice uh, in the afternoons, uh, if he didn't like the way I was tracking a ball in the outfield, uh, he would take me out with a little red bag, with, it was a little zipper bag, kind of a plaid looking bag, full of about 30 baseballs, and he would drill me, you know, like after dinner again. So I knew how to field uh, really well. So I started out in center field. Then they moved me in high school to, to left field. Uh, and I was left-handed. So it was, I enjoyed left field. Uh, less running than in center field, but uh, a lot of action. So I knew how to field. Uh, and uh, so I didn't, I, I didn't have a lot of throwing errors. Uh, um, I didn't uh, drop balls. I knew how to stop grounders. I mean, I was, I was pretty good. The story I'm going to tell you is not about how I was pretty good. It's the opposite of that. It was kind of an embarrassing game. You ever have one of those? When you've done really well, and then all of a sudden, it just kind of goes south on you. Um, and this relates to Easter, if you're wondering. He's just kind of rambling. I don't ramble. Tr- true? <laughs> Thank you for supporting me. So, uh, so my senior year, we're playing at our stadium. It's called Starkville. Uh, it's old wooden bleachers, seats, I don't know, probably 2,000 people, big stadium. Uh, and I played on this field, you know, and for years. I know, I know the position well. Uh, and uh, so when our, we're playing our opposing team, uh, one of their main hitters got up and, and I, you know, I'm in the outfield. I think the, f- the left field fence was like 325 feet and uh, he just drills a ball and I know it's gone. I mean, the minute it cleared the infield, it's gone. Uh, trajectory, the speed, it was no pop-up. It was a line drive. It was just like a rocket. So, so what do you do as an outfielder? Do you just stand there and just, you know, oh, well, it's gone. Uh, I wanted to look like I was, you know, making an effort. So I ran back to the warning track. And so I'm running, following the ball, tracking the ball out of the ballpark. And as I get to the warning track, uh, the ball stopped in midair. This was no lie. This is no pastoral stretch of the imagination. The ball stopped in midair. It was as if a finger of God just flicked it, just bink. And all of a sudden, it, instead of leaving the ballpark, it starts dropping behind me, like toward the infield. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. So I'm, in the, I'm on the warning track with my steel cleats. I dig them in. I stop. I spin. I turn. I run back toward. I'm following this ball that did I misjudge this thing? Uh, and it, you know, bounces on the ground. I'm, 
They're running, scoring runs. I'm trying to grab the ball, throw it to the infielders. It was not a good thing. So when I ran in after the inning, who do you think is the first person to talk to me once I entered the dugout? No, not my dad. Next to my dad was Coach Middleton. And Coach came up to me. He played for San Diego State. He was a pitcher. He was really good. Uh, Coach came up to me in the dugout. It was one of those uh, subterranean dugouts, you know, kind of ground level. Got down in there. I was trying to hide from the coach. He's like, Baker, come here. They never use your first name. He's like, yeah, what's up, Coach? What were you thinking? What? They scored a bunch of runs off you. What were you thinking? You never do that. I know, Coach. I, I, I don't know how I misjudged that one. But I said it was like there was an angel, like just flicked the ball out of midair and just dropped it. It was a home run. He goes, well, I, I don't believe it. And I go, well, I've, I've never misjudged a ball like that. You've seen me play, but well, you did this time. So a couple innings went by, the game ended, etc. And I, I'm a debater type of person. I admit it. So I came to the coach after the game in the dugout and I said, hey, why don't you walk with me to the outfield and let's see if we can find that angel. <laughs> And so we went out there and we took the, the, the umpire, Mr. White, who called a lot of our games. Mr. White joined us out there. So here we are on the, on the outfield left field and we're looking up, looking around and they're like, okay, I don't see an angel. And that's really funny. Uh, something is up there. So check this out. On the left field fence is a light pole. I mean, a big light pole as you leave the ballpark. And then there's a light pole on the left field uh, foul line. Between them at a diagonal is a thin wire no one had ever seen. In all my years of playing there, I had never seen it. And the wire, as it was shot across from the left field, uh, you know, on the fence light to the foul pole, it crossed, it intersected right where the ball dropped. And I'm like, check this out. I mean, all the hours I played on this field, practiced, you know, after school, run, laps all around that place. And I had never seen that wire. They hadn't either. And I'm like, I proved my case. You know, th- that ball was leaving the ballpark, hit that wire perfectly, and then dropped right where I was standing. Now, I asked Mr. White, could you, could you do something about changing the score? <laughs> that didn't work. Uh, but in time and space, something miraculous happened, didn't it? Are you listening to me? I think it was miraculous. It was unbelievable. I mean, it was like they, they had to hit that thing just absolutely perfect. Well, there. So what has this got to do with, with, uh, with the resurrection of Jesus? Everything. I tell you this all the time. All these stories, they relate to life if you pay attention. Even baseball is a spiritual enterprise, is it not? And so what has it got to do with it? Well, everything. Because something unusual happened that you didn't expect in time and space. And there was evidence if you just looked up. So seeing that wire was believing what happened, right? When you think about the resurrection and you look at the evidence for the resurrection, seeing is believing when you consider the facts of the resurrection. Uh, This is what the apostle Paul uh, encounters when he uh, writes to the Corinthian church that he founded. He, He wants to understand like what's going on in the church that he founded. They're having a doctrinal issue. Because the church is divided between those in the church who say Jesus was resurrected and those in the church who claim to be Christians who say, we believe everything about Jesus except for the fact there was a bodily resurrection. Paul's like, "Uh, hello? Have you considered the evidence? Because the evidence for the resurrection is like the evidence for seeing the wire up there. It's, it's, It's factual. You can see it. It's kind of miraculous. I mean, think about it. 
And so Paul talks to this church that was a, a church he founded. And you talk about a messed up church. This was a messed up church. Read the other 14 chapters before this. You name the issue, they had it at their church. And Paul says, okay, I've dealt with you people for years, and now you're, you're debating the resurrection in your, in your church. Uh, the reason why they did this is when they got saved, they were steeped in uh, Grecian dualism. Uh, and in their particular culture, they taught within dualism and, and that type of thought that there was a body and a spirit. And the body's evil, uh, and you can do with it what you want to, uh, but what matters is your spirit. So at, at the moment of death, the body is discarded and you are freed uh, in their system of belief. And they brought that over into Christianity. So if you believed in Greek, Grecian dualism, you would ipso facto never believe in a physical resurrection. Who would want to be reunited with that which is evil? Well, the gospel claimed that Jesus was bodily resurrected. So they had a problem. So if you get to verse 12, Paul addresses their problem. Remember, we're going to go backwards. We're going to start with the culmination of his argument. And then we're going to go back and, and look at how he develops it. The, uh, the greatest chapter on the defense of the resurrection is chapter 15. But look, he gets to the issue in their church. He says, now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, he said, I have a question for you. How do some among you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? I mean, he said, that, that, that's what we've been preaching. He says, if, 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 if this is what we've been preaching, the resurrection physical body of Christ from the dead, how could you possibly say as a Christian that there wasn't a bodily resurrection? I mean, that, that doesn't follow. Now, notice it's an if-then clause, correct? Right? So I took six years of Greek because I wanted to be able to read the, the original text that we have. I wanted to read those to see, was anything lost in translation? Well, not only do you see that nothing's lost in translation, you also understand the finer points of grammar. Grammar is a beautiful thing, isn't it? Grammar is a beautiful thing, isn't it? Amen. Praise God for grammar. This is a conditional clause. In Greek, there's three kinds of conditional clauses in the New Testament. The first class conditional clause is a statement of fact. The second one, less certain. A third class condition is, whoa, I mean, it's just, who knows? This is a first-class condition. So since it's a first-class condition, what does that mean? Christ died, was buried, and he res was resurrected. He's, he takes that as a fact. Paul says, uh, I'm stating this in a conditional way in the Greek text, but they all knew Paul was drawing, drawing the line under this, that Jesus was indeed resurrected. So he's going to go to them, and he's going to give them three proofs, three lines of evidence, like an attorney in a court of law, uh, to help them reason toward why Jesus was resurrected and what that means for their spiritual standing. So let's analyze what Paul says, starting in verse 3. This is proof number one. He says, Now I make known to you, uh, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, in which you stand. This is, this is what he uh, talks about, by which you were saved, if you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, unless that you believed in vain. This is interesting as he prepares his argument. Uh, he makes known to them the gospel. The gospel is good news. That's basically what it means. It's good news. What's the good news? That I as a sinner cannot save myself. I need someone outside of me who's holy to save me, to do something, to redeem me. Uh, that was Jesus who bore my sin and rose from the th grave the third day. The gospel is I'm a sinner. I believe that. I get saved based on that evidence. But he says, uh, this is a, an amazing thing I've given to you. I've preached it to you, and you've received it. And he said, you also stand in this truth. Uh, this is uh, the word for stand in the Greek text. Is, uh, it's, it's perfect tense. When you see a perfect tense when you're reading Greek, you have to stop and ask yourself, that's most unusual. Why would they use the perfect tense? Because the perfect tense means something happened in the past. It has an unabiding, uninterrupted result. 
an abiding, uninterrupted result. So he said, if you believe the gospel, the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, then you stand in that. It's a spiritual standing. It's grammatically something that cannot be broken, which leads to this question. Can you lose your salvation? Not based on the grammar, you can't. He says, you stand in this truth. Once you get saved by the gospel, you stand in that saved moment. It saves you. He actually says it's by which you are saved. And then he throws in another conditional clause. He says, well, if you hold fast, if you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Um, does that mean then I as a Christian have to hold on to God and if I sin, I lose my salvation? And No, because if that was the case, you'd be going in and out of salvation all the time, huh? Don't you sin on a daily basis? Only people in the front row? Thank you. Yeah, yeah. The rest, they're absolutely holy. They never sin. Um, but no, he's not talking about that. The word for vain here means that you believe something quickly or flippantly. Uh, so, you know, it's like, uh, do you believe uh, that Jesus uh, walked the earth? Yeah, sure. Uh, do you believe he was a great rabbi, great teacher? Oh, sure, yeah. Uh, do you believe he loved people and cared for people? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you, do you believe that he rose from the grave after he was crucified? Well, not really, because, you know, scientific evidence doesn't really prove that. There's a birthday and a death day, and, you know, my humanism kind of takes over at that point. Hmm. Are you saved? No. No, because if you have a flippant belief like that, that you're not saved. That's what he's saying. He's saying in that conditional clause, if you are a Corinthian, as it were, uh, it, like all the other things about Jesus, but the resurrection part you can't swallow, then you believed in vain. You, you never had faith to start with. You were professing faith. You didn't possess it. But to the Christians who profess faith in Christ and believe in the resurrection, he wants to remind them of the three proofs of the Christ uh, resurrection, his bodily resurrection. So proof number one in Paul's court of law. He says, you must consider a historical death. Why? Well, this particular uh, creed that he gives us here, it's one of the most ancient creeds that the church has that Paul's going to give them. You cannot have a resurrection in time and space, something miraculous, unless you first have a death, correct? I mean, it just logically follows. So he starts there. He says in verse 3, For I delivered to you of first importance, and these are all words used in a Grecian court of law. That's how we know Paul's developing his case. The thing I like about Christianity, it's a reasoned faith. It's not faith based on no evidence. It's faith based upon the evidence that you see. He says, I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, this ancient creed, that uh, first of all, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He lays out the facts of the death of Christ, that Christ died in time and space. Uh, it's all proved that he lived and he died in biblical literature and extra biblical literature, verifies the fact that Christ indeed died. Did a lookalike replace him on his... Uh, on his road to the cross? Did they switch out bodies? Because some people believe that that's what happened. Uh, how could you switch out a body from a Roman crucifixion detail? They would let no one escape. Well, maybe when they were getting to, to nail him onto the cross, they switched out a body double. I think not. You think the Roman professional executioners are gonna let a body switched out? And who would want to be switched out? <laughs> I'm just saying. See, all the evidence supports the fact that Jesus died in time and space. Matthew tells the story. Mark does, uh, as he wrote for Peter as his amanuensis or his scribe. Uh, Dr. Luke, who was a medical doctor, writes about the evidence of the death of Christ. That Christ died at 3 p.m. on a Friday afternoon on Passover, Pishak. He died. He willingly gave up his spirit because he had to lay his life down. Uh, you remember in John chapter 19, verse 31, 
John gives us some details about the death of Christ. Now, he says, now, since it was a preparation day, in order that the bodies might not remain on the cross on the Shabbat, in Shabbat, uh, in Jewish time ter terminology, they're not, we're on Roman time. They're not. So the Jewish uh, day uh, was calculated differently. So at sunset, uh, you know, on, on Friday uh, to, to, to sunrise, this was a, they were calculating time based upon that methodology, not midnight to midnight like we do. So Friday evening, when they saw the first star, that's the beginning of Shabbat, Sabbath. So they're not going to leave anybody on a cross. Uh, after, they're going to bury them before the Shabbat begins, like at 6. So that's what he's talking about. He says, for the Sabbath day of the week was a solemn one. Uh, the Jews asked Pilate that, that their legs be broken and that they be taken down. This is interesting. So the soldiers came and they broke the legs of the first and then the other who was crucified with Jesus. But when they came to Jesus and they saw that he was already dead, what did they not do? They didn't break his legs. They didn't break his legs. Uh, John adds this to the death of Christ. Uh, he says, but one soldier uh, thrust his lance into his side and immediately blood and water flowed out of the pericardium cavity because he was dead. It, 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 you know, there wasn't blood pumping. He was dead. His lungs had filled with water from the crucifixion. This is interesting because according to Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, there was an ancient prophecy hundreds of years before Christ was born saying that when the Messiah dies, he will have his side pierced. That's exactly what happened. Again, statistically impossible. He could not control what a soldier did after he died. It also says in Psalm 34, verse 20, which is more of an ancient prophecy than Zechariah's prophecy, um, that the Messiah's legs would not be broken when he came. They didn't break his legs. They broke the first criminal, the second criminal, and then not Christ's legs. And the reason why is according to Exodus chapter 12, verse 46, concerning the first Passover when God uh, uh, delivered the Jews from Israel, they did not break the, la the lamb, the Passover lamb's body. No bone was broken. Who is Jesus? Well, he's the ultimate Passover lamb. They cannot, by definition, break his legs because that would uh, denote he wasn't the Passover lamb. So they did not break his legs. And functionally, why are you breaking the legs anyway? Well, the way a Roman uh, uh, crucified a, a, a convict, uh, arms uh, to the cross beam nailed, and then the feet nailed, typically with one nail through the feet, legs bent at an angle. There was a small little seat that you could kind of kind of sit on just just a little bit and if you wanted to breathe as you were dying you had to push up on the nails on your feet to put air into your lungs so if they broke your legs guess what happened you died so they would verify somebody was dead by breaking the legs but when they saw jesus they who had done this many times over knew a dead person when they saw him and the soldier said he's dead i'll spear him anyway just to make sure he was dead time and space, seeing is believing. The fact is there that he died. Why did he die? Well, it says here that he died, according uh, to what Paul says here, he died for our sins. He died for our sins. This is a prepositional phrase that's so important. Huper is the, is the Greek word, that he died in our behalf. It's like substitutionary death. We who should have been on the cross because of our sins, he took our place on the cross. Isaiah chapter 53 is one of the greatest prophecies concerning the work of the Messiah, written some 800 years before he ever walked the planet. It says in verse 4, concerning the Messiah, it says, yet it was for, notice it's not his pain, but our pain that he bore, our sufferings he endured. We thought of him as stricken, struck down by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for whose sins? Ours. He crushed for whose sins? 
ours, our iniquity. He bore the punishment that makes us whole. By his wounds, we are healed. He's speaking of spiritual healing, that you're cleansed of your sin because of his work. He says, we'd all gone astray like sheep, all following our own way, but the Lord laid upon him the guilt of who? Us, us. Though harshly treated, he submitted. He did not open his mouth like a lamb. Remember, Passover lamb led to the slaughter, or a sheep silently for his shearers, he did not open his mouth. You know, if you were being unjustly crucified, would not you be arguing with everybody there? He didn't. He didn't. He prophesied he wouldn't. Seized and condemned, he was taken away. Who would have thought that any, any more of his destiny, destiny? For he was cut off from the land of the living, struck for the sins of who? His people. For all people. For you, for me. See, our sins should have put us on the cross, but he stepped on our place. That's why Paul says he died for our sins, according to the scriptures, because the scriptures prophesied that the Messiah would come, he would die in time and space. Proof number one, seeing is believing. All you have to do is read the ancient evidence, biblical literature and extra biblical literature to understand, yes, Christ lived and Christ died. Number two, proof number two, that Christ had a bodily resurrection. Uh, they actually buried him. That's a short little phrase, verse four, and that he was buried. He had a historical burial. Uh, th this is most fascinating when you study who buried Christ. Um, two members of the Jewish Sanhedrin, their equivalent of the Supreme Court, came and took his body. So Bible trivia for just a moment. Who came and took the body? Two of them. Two men. Joseph of Arimathea, a very wealthy member of the Jewish Sanhedrin, and Nicodemus. Remember Nicodemus? Wow. Came to Jesus by night because he didn't want uh, anybody else in the Sanhedrin to see him. So this is their equivalent of the Supreme Court. This would be the equivalent of, uh, 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 pick anybody on our uh, Supreme Court, Sotomayor, Bruce Kavanaugh, pick, pick one of them. That two of them came forward to say, we believe wholeheartedly, there's no other God, it's Jesus is the Messiah, he's the Savior, he's risen from the dead, we believe him, and they came out publicly and said that. Do you think that when Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus came and asked for the body of Christ, that they were eventually canceled? Did you hear me? See, they came forward and it cost them everything to stand up for truth. They stood up for the truth of who Jesus is. They came out of the shadows and Joseph came to, uh, according to Mark 15, 43, came to Pilate and said, I would like the body of my Lord. And Pilate then had to verify with the lead centurion of the crucifixion detail if Christ was in fact dead. According to Matthew 15, 44 to 45, uh, the centurion said he was, yes, in fact dead. He then released Christ's body. Then Joseph, along with uh, uh, Nicodemus, took the body of Christ uh, and put it in the tomb of Joseph. And as they prepared his body for burial, they wrapped it in what it says in the scriptures were 75 pounds of uh, spices in between the, uh, the linen wrapping. So it's basically like wrapping a mummy. As you're wrapping, you're putting spices in. Wrapping, putting spices in. I would submit to you, who would ever think someone could escape from that? I don't know, somehow he woke up and got out of that. And then he walked over and he rolled that couple of ton stone away from the door. It was unbelievable. He escaped. Yeah, right. I'm a logical guy. If you, got, if you have gone through Roman crucifixion and lived, I mean, the flogging, and, you made, and then you got to the cross and they crucified you, uh, and you happened to somehow fake him out and you weren't really dead, and then they wrapped you in 75 pounds of, of, you know, mummified wrappings, and you're inside of a, of, of a tomb, a cave, as it were, and they roll a couple of tons stone over the door, you're not even able to get out of the wrappings, given your physical condition, let alone 
push from your angle uh, that kind of rock in the track. I've seen the track before. Because when I take people to Israel, uh, we're going again next year. I think we have 120 people signed up to go for 55 slots. So we're going to be going like for a couple of years again. And we've, I've done this for like 20 years. But if you go to Gordon's Calvary, it's the picture they always show you of the picture of the skull. Uh, it looks a lot like what it must have looked like because uh, of where Christ was crucified. And there's the, the, the tomb there that they, one theory is this is where Jesus was laid. Uh, and you can walk in, turn to your right, and there's an actual uh, uh, stone uh, carved there with an extra addition carved into the stone uh, where you can see they had to extend it because if this was for Christ, he was taller. That, that's one place where they could have put Christ. There's a massive stone that rolls over the, the mouth of that opening. I don't think that's the original site personally. I think it's the original site is where the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is, but this looks like it. But the point being, it, it, Christ was buried there in time and space, and he was quite dead. And his followers, uh, this, these two men of great reputation, bowed before the Christ and took his body and put it in there, and a massive stone was rolled over the place. And then the Romans sealed it with a seal, which means they put a, a piece of rope over it and put like, uh, uh, like um, wax on either end of that. And then it was uh, on pains of death if you messed with the seal. And then to top that off, they stationed armed troops outside of that to make sure they're guarding the dead man. They just didn't want the body stolen. Yeah, but we know the story of what happened. The angel shows up. Where do the Roman soldiers go? They can't handle that. Anyway, back to my sermon. That's next year. Um, Christ died in time and space, did he not? I mean, the evidence shows, biblical evidence, extra biblical evidence shows that he did. Now, Paul builds to his third point, his major point about the physical resurrection of Christ. He says, uh, consider the evidence of the people that he appeared to. I mean, you can go, you can interview them. Notice what he says. He says, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, uh, because in Psalm 1610, it prophesied uh, that the Messiah would not be abandoned in the grave, but he would emerge. Uh, and when you read Isaiah's statement in Isaiah 53 that we just read about the suffering servant, the Messiah, when you get to the end of it, it, it ends on like a crescendo that, that he will be uh, the, the one who will be enjoying like the, the Davidic throne in the kingdom. And it, it, it it tells you that if he's enjoying the kingdom throne, but he was killed at the beginning of the passages, he must be resurrected to enjoy his rulership. So the concept of the Messiah rising from the grave is all throughout the Old Testament and passages like that. And so when Paul says he was raised uh, in this creedal formula on the third day, according to the scriptures, he then tells you who he, who saw him. So he says, who's the first person that uh, it says that in the creedal formula that he appeared to? Cephas, another name for Peter, 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 I, I need to ask you, was that the first person that saw Jesus? No, no. Remember, this is just a concise creedal formula that everybody memorized, just some of the basics to give to their children, to teach their family what the gospel was. Uh, so we know that when he appeared, he appeared to uh, the women first, did he not? He appeared to Mary Magdalene. Mary and Salome, the women who'd gone early in the morning to the tomb. Uh, and I find that, that to me validates the story of the resurrection because in the, in the Jewish culture, they did not count the, the witness of a woman in court as viable. That was their culture. And what does God do? He said, I'm gonna take women that I adore and I'm gonna make, I'm gonna make them the witnesses of my resurrection. That's how you know the story's the story. But in the creedal formula, he starts off with Peter, that Peter first saw Jesus and was convinced 
that he was indeed the Messiah. Uh, he, appeared to, he appeared to Peter and got his attention. Remember uh, after the ladies came back and told Peter and John and the disciples that they had seen Jesus, the disciples were like, huh? And so uh, John and Peter both ran to the side of the tomb. And John is dumbfounded when he gets there. He just looks in. He's in shock. Why was he in shock? He sees the grave clothes that are, you know, the mummified body, you know, wrapped. But there's no body in. Where'd the body go? It passed through the clothes. And so he just standing in the door dumbfounded. And Peter, in typical style, because he was just kind of a bull in a china shop, was he not? He was, he was something else. The fisherman. He runs straight in. He got to see. You know, he eventually sees Jesus, and it he's totally convinced that Jesus is quite alive, Peter. When you think about Peter, what kind of viable witness is Peter? A very viable witness. Because well, when it came to Pentecost, and he preaches the first sermon in Jerusalem to thousands of Jews, fellow men and women, he preaches to them, to their faces, the resurrection of Jesus the Messiah that many of them had either just seen, heard about, or participated in. And many of them, as we know from his, his testimony, get, get saved because they believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Eventually, Peter goes to his death under the hands of Nero, and he's crucified. And he said that he did not want to be crucified straight up like Jesus was, but upside down because he couldn't be crucified like his master. What person would, would, would do this? He would, not remember, he would not say Caesar is Lord. He would only say that Jesus is the Lord because I've seen him. You know, uh, liars make lousy martyrs. Are you listening to me? Liars make lousy martyrs. I mean, if you concocted this and then you went to be crucified over it, don't you think you would, would, you would change your mind? He didn't. It says he also appeared to the 12. I find that if people say the Bible's boring, they need to read it. Because when he appears to the 12, and of course it's not the 12, that's just their name, because they're, who's not there? Judas isn't there because he hung himself. And who else isn't there? Thomas is not there. Remember doubting Thomas? So how many do you have? You have 10. Jesus appears to the, 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 the 10. Verse 19 of John chapter 20. On the evening of the first day of the week. So the first day of the week in Jewish time reckoning is Sunday. Ours is Monday. There's a Sunday. On the first evening of the first day of the week, uh, when the doors were locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came into their midst and said to them, Logically, he'd have to say this. Peace be with you. Why? Because they're freaking out. Wouldn't you? They just killed your Lord. You saw the, your, you know, the whole crucifixion event. Now you're hiding because if they kill Jesus, they're coming for us next. You, you're hiding in the room. You lock the door. And while you're in there with your 10 best friends, Jesus appears. In uh, what kind of body? Well, it appears in a physical body because it says in Luke 24, verse 42, that to demonstrate that it was he, not only did he show them his wounds, he ate broiled fish. Was it a body of a spirit? Well, no, because he's sitting there eating fish. I would say to you that the, the resurrected body is quite amazing, is it not? Because it can pass through matter or it can go from one dimension to the other and just poof. Jesus said, uh, I, I just want to be in that room with my man, poof. There he is. And he scares them to death. And that's why he's saying, peace be unto you. When they saw him, they saw him as wounds in the physical body that is a resurrected body. They all went to their deaths based on what they saw. Did you know that? All of them, except for one, uh, John, 
who wrote Revelation. He's exiled on Patmos during uh, Domitian's reign, but first they, they, they put him in hot oil to try to kill him. And then after that, then they ship him off to Patmos out in the Aegean Sea. But the rest of them, after they saw Jesus, preached Jesus, resurrected, and they all died for their faith. Andrew, crucified in Patras, Greece. Bartholomew, also called Nathaniel. Uh, they killed him with a whip in Armenia. James the Just, they threw him from the temple. Uh, James the Greater, they beheaded him in Jerusalem. Luke, they hung him in Greece. Mark, drugged to death by a horse in Alexandria, Egypt. Matthew, murdered by a sword in Ethiopia. Philip, they crucified him in Phrygia, which would be modern-day Turkey. Uh, Thomas, they killed him with a spear in India. Martyrs make liars make lousy martyrs. These men were not lying. They, they went to their deaths because they had seen Jesus and they knew that the gospel was true, that he had lived, he had been buried, and he was very much alive. And then it also says that Jesus also appeared in the creedal formula to 500 people all at one time, probably in Galilee, because when the angels told the women where they were going, they said, we're going to get, he's going to Galilee. 500 people showed up and they saw Jesus. 500 people at one time. I was going back, I've done it before, but I went back and I was reading uh, psychological articles on mass hallucination. You know, it'd be, it would be impossible to have everybody here at the same time to have the same hallucinatory event. But not too difficult for one person to say they did, but for hundreds of people, well, well nigh impossible. Jesus appeared to 500 people, and Paul says in the text, he says, if you w want to go interview any of them, a lot of them are still alive. I mean, I can give you their addresses. We can tell you who they are. You can go, and if you're kind of the Downing Thomas kind of person, hey, I got to know. I got to talk to somebody. Well, well, hey, uh, there was this guy named Yehuda. He was there, and his wife, Miriam, she was there, and there were some other friends. They saw Jesus in the flesh. He was there. And, and when you read Acts chapter 1, verses 3 and following, it says that before Jesus ascended from the Mount of Olives, for 40 days he kept appearing, and by many infallible proofs, like eating fish, he showed them I am very much resurrected and alive in a, in a body that's amazing. That convinced them. And, 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 and uh, Paul goes on to say he also appeared to James, his brother. You know, Christ had brothers and sisters. Could you imagine he's your brother? Matthew chapter 13, verses 55 to 56 tells us that he had brothers and he had sisters. Did they believe in him? Could you imagine if your brother came to you <laughs> And you got a whole bunch of siblings, and your oldest brother comes to you and says, I just want to let the, all you kids know, I, as the eldest, have come to the conclusion that I am God in the flesh. I am the Messiah. What would you do? He's lost his mind. He thinks he's the Messiah. He thinks he's God. Oh, my. And he's got mom believing this. It's unbelievable. Dad's gone. He's holding the family together, you know, with the carpentry shop and everything. And it's like, now he thinks he's God? See, they mock Jesus. Well, Jesus appeared to one of his brothers. His name was James. James, who mocked his brother, J Jesus. And Jesus, James became a believer in the Messiah. Why? Because seeing is believing. He saw the evidence for himself, and he believed. In fact, he believed so much so uh, that he took over an, uh, the control of the church in Jerusalem in Acts 15. He's the leader of the church. He's the main pastor of the church. He's a pastor of this Jewish church full of Jewish converts to the Messiah. Imagine. Many of them seen the crucifixion, part, part of the crucifixion. He's, he's the brother of Jesus, and he comes to Christ. How do you get a Jewish man to walk away from Judaism? Well, you introduce him to the risen Christ. He saw the Christ. 
And he said, I must worship the living Christ. That is my brother. Again, seeing is believing. Then Paul says, lastly, he appeared to another non-Christian. He, he appeared to me. He says in verse 15, or first chapter 15, verse eight, last of all, as one born abnormally, he, Jesus, appeared to me. He says, for I am the least of all the apostles, not fit to be called an apostle, because why? I persecuted the church of God. Boy, did he. See, he was, he was the PhD in Torah studies, and he could not stand anybody that was a Jew who converted to Jesus. So he, he physically took him out. Unbelievable. He said, uh, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me has not been ineffective. Indeed, I have told harder than all of them, not I, however, but the grace of God that is in me. Therefore, whether it be I or they, so we preach to you, and so you believed. He said, I cannot believe it. Jesus, he, he showed himself to me. And I changed my whole paradigm of how I thought about him. Acts uh, chapter 9 recounts what happened to Paul. Uh, his name back then was Saul. Still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, he went to the high priest. What do you want? Uh, he asked for letters uh, from him to the synagogues of Damascus so that if, that if any were found uh, of those who were of the way, and the way is, remember Jesus said, I am the way. That's a name, ancient name for the Christians. Uh, whether they're men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him. God uh, allowed him to see into his dimension. And then he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him from, from heaven, from the glory, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And then the Lord said to him, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And then he says, you know, Paul, it's hard to kick against the goads. Isn't it, Paul? You're persecuting my people. You're persecuting me. So he was overcome by all of that. So he, trembling and astonished, he said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And then the Lord said to him from his throne, arise, go into the city, and I will tell you what you must do. So he got saved on the Damascus road. He's all focused on getting rid of Christians who would convert to Christ, and he sees the risen Christ. And Paul himself, under Nero, goes to his death believing Christ is Lord. Why? He'd seen him. He'd seen him. Seeing is believing. All those people had seen. They're great testimony. But you have to have faith in the evidence of what you've seen. I close with a story about a high wire expert uh, who years ago crossed the Niagara Falls on a, on a wire. Who would do that? And he did it with a wheelbarrow full of 150 pounds of potatoes. <laughs> I mean, it's a little alone crazy enough, like I'm going to walk across the wire, let alone I'm going to push a wheelbarrow full of 150 pounds of, of potatoes. When he got to the side where all the people were standing watching his feet, he had a, a little uh, uh, helper there, a young girl. And so she helped him uh, with the wheelbarrow, and they emptied out all the potatoes, and they put the wheelbarrow back on the wire, and he faced the direction from when she came. Uh, and he then made this statement to the crowd. How many of you believe uh, that uh, I could put a human in this wheelbarrow and walk that person across the falls to the other side? They all said in unison, we believe. Who is willing to get in the wheelbarrow? You think they lined up? Now, I'm not feeling God. Uh, I got to pray about it. You know, uh, you know he, he slip, he could fall. I mean, I, uh -uh, I'm not going out that way. I need more evidence that he could do this multiple times, etc. Now, see, uh, seeing is believing, but you have to believe in that which you see. 
See, you have to have faith enough to get in the wheelbarrow knowing he can take you across death itself. See, this is Jesus. He can take you across death itself because he's God himself. He defeated sin and death. But you have to say, God, I take the, I get, take the evidence and I wet it with faith and that reasoned faith in what you've done on the cross and in the empty tomb, well, it saves me and I'll stand fast in that. Do you, do you stand fast today? Because if you don't stand fast today, the moment you come to know God is a simple faith statement in, in all the facts we just discussed. He died for your sins. He was buried as prophesied, and he rose on the third day as prophesied. He lives evermore to make intercession for you, but you must come to him and say, God, save me, and he will. And if you know him, you have the greatest message that anybody needs to hear. He's risen. Let's pray. God, thank you for the power of the cross of Christ, for the empty tomb, for the evidences that have been given to us that we believe uh, not blindly, but based upon the facts you have given us, the revelatory light we can study. We thank you for it. And we pray that our lives might reflect the glory of the gospel. May your blessings be upon us this, this day, this afternoon, as we're with our families, with our friends. And may our thoughts uh, be of adoration for what you've done for us. And if anybody in, among our family and friend circle don't know you, might this become the day that they bow their knee and say, I, I by faith, I'm gonna get in that wheelbarrow and Jesus is going to save me. In Jesus' name, amen.